You can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. The PowerPoint, it's always the PowerPoint. It hates us. This is the parable of the good, the parable of the good Samaritan. All right, hold on. Did you close the other one? The announcements are closed? Okay. Caitlin is coming. Someone's coming to your rescue. It's okay. The parable of the Good Samaritan, famous parable. Everybody knows this parable. Um, Everyone finds a lot of different things in it. A lot of the things people find are true and are helpful, but they might not necessarily be be the main thing of the parable. So today we're going to take a look at this thing and see... um, see what we can see from the parable. So I'm just going to dive right in. This is one of those times where in, uh, when you go to seminary, I've said this before, but when they go to seminary, they try and get you to have these engaging introductions with a cool illustration to make people, to draw people in. I have no illustration. So let's just read what the Bible says. Um, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. There's no context for this parable. It just appears. Uh, There's not a bunch of stuff that was happening beforehand that helps us understand what's going on. It just starts with, on one occasion, this happened. So I have no context to give you. This parable is extremely important because it teaches us about what our relationship with God should be and shouldn't be. And what our relationship with other people should be and shouldn't be. It gets to the heart of your relationship with God. So this is how it begins. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I wish we had a video of the guy, because words sometimes don't capture the full force. When you look at someone, you can tell how they're saying something. You can hear their voice, and you can get what their motivations are. Now, no matter what translation you have, it probably gives the idea of the guy stood up to test Jesus, even if it used slightly different words. There's no way to get around. That's what it means. We don't know if the guy stood up um, with bad motives or good. Jesus is standing as he's teaching and everyone else is sitting down. The guy stands up to ask the question. So he's drawing attention to himself, maybe not in an evil way, but he stands up so clearly he has something that's pressing on his mind. And you have to decide what the guy's attitude is. This is attitude, this is very interesting. I'd like to hear what this man says about this question so I know if he knows, if he's a good teacher. Or is the guy standing up with the attitude of this guy? What a loser. I'm going to trap him. Which Which attitude does the guy have? I think he has the second attitude, but I can't be certain, but that's what I think. I think he stood up with a nasty attitude of Jesus is a fool, and I'm going to expose him as a fool in front of everyone. I think that's the attitude that this guy has. 
So he stands up and he asks a simple question. He's a scribe or an expert in the law or a lawyer, your translation might say. He's a guy who spent his entire life digging into uh, and copying the Old Testament and making copies of it. Um, and that means he's one of the guys whose entire life is wrapped up in it, probably wrapped up in a fake and wrong idea of relationship with God. Where relationship with God is, I do things, I follow the checklist of things I'm supposed to do, God sees, God is happy, and God rewards me in the end because I was a good, I was a good checklist keeper. That's the attitude that was all over in Jesus' day. Is that this guy's attitude? Probably. He could, there are some, there were some, not everyone was bad. There were some scribes who probably were looking forward to the Messiah in the good way and weren't all like that. This guy probably was. There's a reason why this is the guy who asked this question. But that's what he asks. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, how? He says, what's the Bible say? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So he says, well, what's the Bible say? What do you think the Bible says about this question? He answered, this is what the scribe says, two things, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and number two, love your neighbor as yourself. Great answer, right? Great answer. It's the same thing Jesus said in Mark chapter 12. He combined love God with everything, love your neighbor. The guy answers right. It's a good answer. It's a perfect answer. Perfect. It's a perfect book answer. Have you ever known people who know book answers but don't know, re don't know reality? Have you ever known people like that? This guy is a great answer. It's the right answer. It's still true. What's relationship with God about? You love God. And then it produces fruit to people in the world, people in your life. Fruit. You love God, it overflows into your life. It's always been that way. It's the right answer. Good stuff. Jesus agrees. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you'll live. It's the same way now. How do I have eternal life? Love God. How do I love God? I do believe in Jesus, believe in the promise of the Messiah, trust in Jesus to save me and rescue me. And then you show fruit in your life. Do this and you'll live. Love, love God in the way he's told us to love him. The way he's told us to love him, trust Jesus, what he is, what he did. And then if it's real, it'll show fruit. If you have a real strawberry plant, it'll make strawberries this spring, maybe. You water it enough, okay? If it doesn't produce strawberries and produces raspberries, it's not a strawberry plant. It doesn't matter how much you want it to be. Fruit comes from what the thing is. Maybe the strawberries aren't really good. Maybe you can't really eat them, but you look at it and it's a strawberry, okay? Clearly, it's a strawberry. Maybe next year there'll be better strawberries. Christian produces Christian fruit. Maybe it's not the best fruit all the time, but there's a Christian fruit. Next year it'll be better. But it's fruit that's Christian. Clearly. That's what Jesus says. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
Now we get to the crux of it, which is why the parable is told. Famous parable. This is why he tells it. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, but who is my neighbor? You have to figure, you have to decide what this phrase means. Wanted to justify himself. What does it mean? I think what that means is that he has a, he got up with a point to prove, with a nasty attitude, with a point to prove, because he wants to test Jesus and show that Jesus is wrong. So Jesus says, hey, you answered the question right. The guy hasn't achieved his purpose. He wants to embarrass Jesus and humiliate him. So wanting to justify himself, he wants to prove his point and prove himself to be superior, prove himself to be the one who really knows how to know God and Jesus as a fool. I think that's his attitude. I think that's what it means when it says he wanted to justify himself. Some people think the guy is convicted and he wants to make sure that he's understanding things right. That's possible. I don't think that that's the guy's heart. And I don't know because I don't have the video of him. YouTube has taken it down. You know, so I wish I had the video. So all we can do is try and figure out the guy's heart. I don't think he has a good heart, and I don't think he asked the question sincerely, and I don't think that Jesus said that, and the guy's like, oh, oh, but, but, but who's my neighbor? I don't think it's that attitude. I think his attitude is, okay, who's my neighbor then? I think that's his, his, his attitude. He's trying to embarrass Jesus by getting him to say something wrong so he can embarrass him. I think that's what he's doing. And now Jesus tells the parable in response to this deliberate trickery, in response to the guy's bad motives and nasty attitude. That's what I think. If you, want to, if, you want to see, if you prefer to see him as a guy who's convicted and asking an honest question, you can. And I think it's, that's one way to read it. I, just, I don't think that that's the guy's heart because of who he is and because he got up to test Jesus. I don't think this is an innocent question. This is why the parable is told. So now we get to the parable. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Some people talk about how this is an extremely realistic story. It doesn't matter. He's telling a story to illustrate the neighbor issue. To go from Jerusalem down to Jericho, you're descending a few thousand feet. Jerusalem is up high, Jericho is down low. So they're going down all these mountain passes. This is a, an example of, of the kind of terrain we're talking about. He's winding down through mountain roads, which go this way and go that way. It's like, think of driving down from Mount Rainier. You've been up to Mount Rainier, you've been up to Paradise, you've been up to Sunrise. The drive up and the drive back, you're always going this way and that way in this way, twists and turns and switchbacks, and that's what it is. If you're going up and down a mountain, that, that's what you get. So this is a real picture of the, the route. Of course, it wasn't paved then, but anyway, real picture of the route. Um, here is a picture of the remains of a Roman road going down the mountain. Um, cliffs on either side, winding. So this is, a, this is an area that's perfect to ambush someone, steal everything they have, and leave them for dead. It's a perfect place to ambush somebody. So the story. 
A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So if you hear a sermon, if you hear a sermon about um, if you pass a stranded motorist, you're not being a good Samaritan. It's not the same thing. This is a guy who's beaten and left for dead in the wilderness. A stranded motorist who has a flat tire has not been beaten and left for dead in the wilderness. So I understand what pastors are trying to do when they make that comparison, but it needs to be a worse comparison. This is a guy who's going to die. He's beaten up and left with nothing, tossed on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere which is a lot different than a guy who went on his Geico app and is waiting for the tow truck. A lot different. So, guy's in a bad situation. If anyone needs a helping hand, it's this guy. Bad position, bad place. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Everyone wants to know why. We don't know why. It's not important. It doesn't matter. The guy ignored the hurt man. That's all we need to know. Some people say, well, the priest must have been worried about being ceremonially unclean. Uh, maybe. It doesn't, he doesn't say. I don't care. No one cares. What matters is he left him. He saw him. He walked the other way. He went to the other side and just kept walking. For whatever reason, you can insert whatever excuse that you would use. And I think that's Jesus' point. It doesn't matter what the reason is. The reason is he saw him. He saw the position he's in. And he left him, which is a lot different than you not stopping for the creepy guy on the side of the road. Okay, that's, not, that's not the same thing. This guy's clearly hurt, helpless. He leaves him. And this is a religious guy. This is a priest. He's supposed to teach people about God. He takes the blood from sacrifices and makes atonement. This, is a, this, guy, this guy is supposed to be the one who's closest to God. And he leaves him. So too, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. A Levite is a guy who helps in the temple, lights the candles and puts stuff out and, and other things like that. Not a priest. He doesn't make atonement, but he does things and helps. Um, he left him too. So these two religious guys, you know, if you can surely, it's like that old, some people still have this idea of, I know I can trust you because you're a pastor. I know no one will steal this because this is a church and things like, you know, that sort of attitude of, I can trust this person. Well, here are two guys you can trust and they couldn't care less. They just walk away, leave him, awful. And it's meant to be awful. But a Samaritan comes by. And if you know the Old Testament, the Samaritans are not liked by the Jewish people. When the Assyrians came in and destroyed the Northern Kingdom, the northern kingdom and southern kingdom. It used to be one nation under David and then Solomon. And then, and then after Solomon, Solomon's son was a fool and broke the entire thing apart. And the, the tribe split. And Israel, instead of being one nation, was now two. Hundreds of years later, after lots of apostasy and horrible things, uh, the Assyrian nation came and destroyed the northern kingdom. They destroyed everyone, everything, and then they brought in a whole bunch of foreigners and put them in the land and brought in some priests. And so they eventually, the people who live there, eventually developed this like really half perverted way of paganism and the Jewish religion mixed together and swirled up in a bowl and baked 
in the oven at 350 for 20 minutes. And so when the, the Israelites came back from, the, from exile, Nehemiah, Ezra, the Samaritans who were in the land came and were trying to ask if they can help, and they wanted to be a part of what was going on. And the Israelites who came back from the exile said, no, don't like them. They don't want anything to do with them. They view them as like these weird pagan people who think they're kind of Jewish. So hundreds of years later, by Jesus' day, the Jewish people didn't like the Samaritans. They hated them. And the nasty legalistic attitude that had developed in Jesus' day was to hate, was to not like you if you're not a Jewish person. Gentiles were scum. A Gentile could, the air from a, being around a Gentile could infect your dishes and you'd have to disinfect them or you wouldn't be right with God. A real nasty, like racist attitude that the Jewish people had toward Gentiles. Nasty. And the Samaritans were just like Gentiles. Nasty people. A pious Jew didn't, if wanted to get to, um, wanted to get to Galilee up north, would, go, would not walk through Samaria because it's full of nasty people. So you detour around and not go through Samaria. So Jesus used this guy in his pretend situation on purpose, a guy who this scribe would not like. A Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. So much different than the other two religious guys. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. No one knows where the inn is. Some people think because Jericho is not that far away, the inn was really in Jericho. But for hundreds of years, Christians have traditionally said that the inn is here, on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And this is a photograph from 1920-ish. Um, there's an old Roman, there's an old crusader fort from obviously like the 11th century. But the remains of the inn are here. Jericho's this way, Jerusalem is, is that way. This is the inn today, the remains of it. This is the crusader fort, um, and this is the remains of it. In the 20s, the road went um, this way to the right of the, of the inn. Today, we're looking from the other direction. The road used to go this way, but now the modern six-lane highway goes this way. So this is literally the inn. It's on the cover of your bulletin, too. Uh, if it is true that this is the place, then, then this is the place, in case you wanted to see a picture of it. So this, look at what the Samaritan does for the guy. So shows such care, love, concern. Great guy. Nice guy. And this is the guy who the scribe would hate. Think is scum, doesn't know God, doesn't love God. But this is the guy who actually shows love to this stranger. So unexpected. Verse 35, the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now Jesus told a story, so he comes back to the question. The guy asked a question, so Jesus answers it. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. People see a lot of stuff in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Why did Jesus tell the parable? What made him tell the parable? 
Yeah, to explain what a neighbor is. That's why he told the parable. And there's two lessons we can learn, a secondary lesson and a primary lesson that I think Jesus wants us to see from this. But first, I want to talk about, real quick, what is love? Love is this attitude of deep affection and care that's not earned, but is given. And that's the distinction. It's not earned. It's not earned. Christ is the example. We're supposed to copy Christ. So I'm going to read uh, two verses. Ephesians chapter one, uh, Ephesians chapter five, verses one and two. So pay attention to the, uh, this description of the love Jesus has. This is what it says. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We're supposed to show love to our brothers and sisters and other people because God showed love to us. Okay, did, if Christ died for us, did we earn that? Did we earn it? Did we deserve it? Did we do things so Jesus was like, all right, Tyler has fulfilled his quota, I guess it's time. Or did he just do it just because he had love? So if Jesus died for our sins when we don't deserve it he just extended love because we can't earn it we are supposed to extend love even though we don't earn it think of your marriage i'm not going to be nice to her because she did well if we're supposed to love our wives as christ loved the church then it doesn't matter whether she earns it or not it doesn't matter whether you earn it or not it's a commitment to give love to each other because Jesus, we didn't learn Jesus's love so our wives don't have to earn our loves our husbands don't have to earn our love oh that's really hard but it's that freely given attitude of affection and care that's what love is it's not earned it's given it's really hard so an honest friendship for one another because Jesus loves us. Tim working, on the, uh, working for hours on the water for the building. So many people, uh, Katie Baker, Jim, Arlene, and other people all coming together to do a, a memorial service for someone we never met. Maybe he was here for his grandmother's memorial, Karen Hollingshead uh, Memorial in 2019. I don't know. I don't remember. Never met the guy. I never met the mom. But we do those things anyway because we extend love. Giving people rides when, it's, when it might be inconvenient. We do things not because they earned it, but because we just decide to. So why did Jesus tell the parable? To answer the question about being a neighbor. So the two lessons. Uh, there's one lesson that's a secondary lesson, but important, and then there's a main lesson. The secondary lesson is, I already asked that question. The secondary lesson is the neighbor question. Love for the neighbor. Um, a theologian named R.C. Sproul said something once that's really good. He said, there is no universal brotherhood of men and women, but there is a universal neighborhood. We're only brothers and sisters. Who, the only time we're all brothers and sisters is when we join Christ's family. Then we're brothers and sisters. But we are all neighbors. 
All of us need to be neighbors to each other. We need to show love to one another. We need to show Christ's love to other people. And that's what the guy didn't understand. That's what the guy didn't understand. There is an attitude that flows around in some Christian circles that's all about, that focuses a lot on purity, about um, wanting to make sure that we act in a holy way. And when it's not, if you don't watch yourself, that can turn into a real nastiness with a holy gloss over it. I know a pastor once, there was a young couple coming to church. They came to church all the time, and I don't think they, were, they weren't Christians, actually. Uh, but they were still coming to church. They had a little baby, two-year-old boy. They wanted to get married, and they asked the pastor to marry them. He said no. They never came to church again. Why wouldn't he marry them? Because they had a child out of wedlock. So he wouldn't marry them. And I was thinking, you know they're just going to go to the courthouse and get married anyway, right? So what, what have you accomplished by saying no? They never came back. Never. I never saw him again. So what, are you, what have you accomplished with that? But it's a, they, they sinned. I can't marry them. Why not? Why don't you marry them and show them love and do counseling with them to tell them about what marriage is and maybe they'll want to know more about Jesus because you're extending love. You're not condoning the fact they had a child out of wedlock, but you don't need to be rude about it, do you? You don't need to, what do you want them to do? Give the child back? Would that make it better? What are they supposed to do? He wouldn't marry them. He wouldn't marry them. Didn't want to be a neighbor. He was only interested in purity. At another church I was at, there were these, uh, we had an Awana program, and there were these teen girls. Um, for, one was the sister of a little kid who was coming to club, and the other was a friend of the sister. And they came with their little brother, with one little, the one uh, girl's little brother, and they're teenage girls who weren't saved, and they dressed like teenage girls who weren't saved. And what did the pastor do? He told them that if they, want, they wanted to help in club and help out and do things. Uh, they weren't Christians. The pastor told them they couldn't help unless they dressed appropriately. So guess what? They never came back. Why should they? Why should they? What do you expect? They're not Christians. What do you expect them to dress like? Newsflash. Yeah, what a, and the sky is blue, too. I mean, what do you expect? What, I don't understand. Never came back. There was a couple whom I married um, many years ago when I was a pastor at another church. And I was told by several people that I shouldn't do their wedding because they'd been sleeping together. They're both Christians, but they'd been sleeping together. So I was told I shouldn't do their wedding. And I was like, why? What is that going to accomplish? What will, it, what will it accomplish? They said, well, they should stay apart for a certain amount of time. And I said, so if they don't sleep with each other for four weeks, does it like cancel things out or something? Should I put like a tracking monitor on them? What, what, are, what are we doing here? What's it mean? Make them stay apart for four weeks. Why the four? Why not six? Why not five and a half? What's, the, what, 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 what do we, what's it accomplish here? And so I ignored the advice and I told them, to that I told them that they shouldn't be doing that, and I married them within a week. Did lots of counseling, and we married them within a week. And they're still married today. Great couple, wonderful, things are great. But it's the attitude of this, this nasty attitude 
that who is my neighbor? It's this nasty attitude that Jesus is trying to counter because that's all the guy wants to know. The guy doesn't want to show love. He just wants to know what's the least amount I need to do. What's the least amount I need to do? That's why we collect stuff for options. That's why we collect stuff for the Union Gospel Mission. That's why we do stuff like that. Homeless people everywhere! Well, let's just, why don't we just collect stuff for them and give it to a ministry who knows how to, who knows how to minister to and help people who are struggling with that. So, there is no universal brotherhood where everyone on earth is part of God's family, but there is a universal neighborhood where God wants us to show love to everyone. So maybe they'll come into the family. That's why he used the Samaritan, because it's the two religious guys who don't care. Their knowledge and love, their knowledge of God is all in their head. There's, it's not reflected anywhere else. But it's the Samaritan, who's not a believer, as far as we know, who intuitively knows that he needs to show love and kindness. He's closer to God than the Levite and the priest. And the, the crazy reversal, Jesus does that on purpose with these extremes in the story so that the guy gets the point. What the guy wanted to know is, okay, have eternal life. I love God. I need to love my neighbor. He's quoting from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. What the guy wants to know is, okay, so who exactly do I need to love? Let's, let's nail this down here so we can make sure that I do what I'm supposed to, or I only do what I have to do. But what Jesus is saying is, instead of saying, who exactly am I supposed to love? The question should be, who needs my love? The guy didn't want to ask that question. The Samaritan just knew that was what to do. But the guy just wants to know, what, what's the least amount I need to do to get this done? And that leads to the real lesson. The real problem with this guy is not that he wanted to restrict the neighbor thing. The only reason why he wanted to restrict the neighbor thing is because his relationship with God is non-existent. That's why he's doing that. So the real lesson of this parable is relationship with God. The guy answered right. Love and affection for God produces fruit. That's what it means. To, how do you have eternal life? Love God with everything you have, heart, soul, mind, strength, love God by believing in his son Jesus and what he's done for other people. And you won't be making lists about who you don't need to show love to and who you have to show love to. Just like you wouldn't make a list about, I don't have to do this for my wife, but I do have to do this. Because that's not the way love works. You just do things for your wife. You just do things for your husband because you love. Have you ever prayed, God, help me to love you more? That's what we should be asking ourselves as we think about what's wrong with this guy and we think about our own lives. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to love you more. Help us to learn from this parable how we should love other people so they might come to know and love you too. Help us not to be legalistic with a nasty attitude about things in our life or help us not to look down upon people who aren't as outwardly put together as we feel they should be. Help us to show love and kindness, to not condone things that people do that are wrong, but to show them Jesus' love so you can work in their heart and move them to change.
Aaron and Janet are going to come and lead us in one more song to worship to close this morning. I'm actually just going to read you this song because um, it's not one that I think we've ever done here, but I was just reading the words and I think they're appropriate. So if you want to read along, it's number 302. It says, The love of God is broader than the earth's vast expanse. Tis deeper and wider than the sea. Love reaches out to all to bring abundant life. For God so loved the world, his only son he gave. We show the love of God each day we live. Reveal Christ's presence in our lives. And how the Holy Spirit guides us day by day. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. I think that sums it up. Go and have a good week.